Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. It's been a momentous week for the UK, both politically with the appointment of Liz Truss as head of a new government, and I imagine for many people also emotionally momentous with the death on Thursday of Queen Elizabeth, our Queen for the past 70 years, during which the country has experienced quite a remarkable amount of change. The death of the Queen, in fact, largely overshadowed the announcement of what on other days would have been an equally momentous announcement, that of the government's plans to spend up to £150 billion, an enormous sum, greater than the cost of the whole of the Covid lockdown measures, to help cap fuel bills for the entire population over the next two years, and in particular through the coming winter, uh, at a time when Russia is weaponizing the world energy system and forcing up both inflation and oil and gas prices in particular. And the government's doing so while at the same time promising to cut taxes in what the new Chancellor Kasi Kwarteng said was an, quote, unashamedly pro-growth economic agenda, unquote. Can these two objectives of spending prodigiously while also cutting taxes, which is hardly a, a traditional conservative policy mix, really be squared? There are many who doubt that it can, but I shall be discussing this and other questions this week with two guests. The first is Alistair Lang, co-manager of the Capital Gearing Trust, uh, the well-known multi-asset investment trust, which aims to preserve and grow the real value of its shareholders' wealth over time, as it has indeed largely done so far this year, while the market equity markets have been tumbling across the world, though not, of course, to the same extent in the UK. And the second guest is Stephen Tredgett, a partner of Oakley Capital, manager of Oakley Capital Investments, a private equity trust that reported yet another set of good interim results this week, uh, but has seen its share price, in common with that of a number of other large private equity trusts, move out, despite those good results, in this case, to around 35%. Yes, I know we talked at length about private equity uh, last week, and so some of you may think this is a bit of overkill, uh, but there's so much interest in this topic at the moment that I judged it worthwhile to carry this second interview at its full length for podcast listeners again this week. We decided, though, to put it out as a bonus podcast rather than include it in this uh, particular recording. So if you are interested in the private equity issue, you'll get a, an email alerting you to the second interview. And if you're not, well, then you won't have to listen to it in this particular recording as it stands. You can, of course, uh, see a comprehensive summary of all the main investment trust announcements this week behind the paywall on the Moneymakers Circle website. Uh, which uh, subscribers can access for the sum of £2 a week. Uh, We also have a profile this week of 3i, another private equity trust. It's also been a week which, in addition to a relatively small number of interesting corporate and results announcements from the investment trust sector, also saw the first successful fundraising exercise for some time, £135 raised by the SDCL Energy Efficiency Trust, uh, and a dramatic raising of interest rates by the European Central Bank, echoing recent moves by both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. Uh, Notwithstanding this, or perhaps because of it, both Wall Street and the FTSE 100 index look set to finish the week actually up, uh, while bond yields generally eased. Uh, The investment trust sector also edged up on the week, despite a poor first day on Monday. The average trust discount is still hovering around the 11 to 11.5% mark, uh, and the sector FTSE closed-end investment trusts Index is down 15% or so this year against uh, the All Shares 2.4% decline. Uh, notable results this week reported included from Shihalian, International Public Partnerships, Oakley Capital Investments, uh, Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth, where the long-serving manager Harry Nimmo has announced he'll be retiring at the end of the year, uh, Vietnam Enterprise Investments, Triple Point Social Housing, Starwood European Real Estate Finance, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, Fair Oaks Income and Castlenow. Before turning to those, however, I sat down yesterday, Friday afternoon, with Alistair Lang, co-manager of Capital Gearing Trust, to talk about the election, the markets and a number of those investment trust announcements. I'll be rounding up the other ones uh, at the end of the podcast. So, Alistair, this week, as I said, in the markets, we've seen the uh, 
FTSE All Share uh, rally a little bit towards the end of the week, and uh, gilt yields have uh, at least not shot any further through the roof, having risen strongly this year. What's your thoughts on the new government, the new Prime Minister, and this extraordinary £150 billion energy price cap proposal, which is going to uh, obviously dominate politics and the economic outlook for this country over the next few months? Jonathan, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. I am I'm a listener myself and um, I've just been off actually on sabbatical and this is one of my first things that I've, I've done since I've been back. So uh, really exciting way to start. I think just, just taking a bit of a step back, you know, the summer has been really marked by the very weak trend in sterling above expectation uh, inflation and associated with that, interest rates have been pushing up very uh, strongly, very markedly. These have been fast moving and very powerful trends. So I think the fact that we've had a little pause for breath just this week since um, the announcement of uh, a trust government, I wouldn't be putting too much weight on that. Um, As you say, the FTSE has been really quite strong. I think that sterling weakness has been helpful for that. Clearly, any overseas earnings in the FTSEs, and there is a lot of overseas earnings in the the FTSE 100, gets translated uh, very profitably as uh, sterling weakens. Um, If you look at the FTSE 250, for example, our domestic market is off as much as any markets globally. So I think the currency is an important part of what's gone on. It's a supportive backdrop. And I also think there was some relief for market participants when the talk around the windfall tax in the UK was somewhat scaled back. Definitely a number of energy stocks bounced a little on that. So, I mean, sterling has fallen, as you say, quite uh, dramatically this year from, I think, around 135 down to, as I say, around 115. And there have been some people speculating that it could go down to parity at some point. You always get these kind of uh, extravagant claims. There's always people out there trying to sell you an idea. But uh, are you saying that you think the future course of sterling and indeed the uh, the stock market is essentially uh, still up for grabs? Well, you mentioned the energy price cap. You mentioned it in terms of a huge fiscal stimulus, which really is what it is. I think part of the reason that sterling was weak over the summer was Trust was making it quite clear that she wasn't going to put up taxes. But it was equally becoming clear to everyone it was an absolute political necessity to do something about the energy price cap. So we've ended up with a massive unfunded government giveaway, which is exactly the same as a large fiscal stimulus. And this is quite an unusual thing to do at a time of inflation at very high rates as we have now. One impact of that uh, energy price cap will be actually to dampen inflation a little bit in the short term, maybe for next year. There were predictions of uh, UK inflation starting next year in the mid to high teens. And that might well fall back to somewhere around 10% as the energy component of the CPI is suppressed. But there are issues. Firstly, it's more than likely that the price cap will be temporary. Therefore, inflation in the future will be higher. And the other really important matter is the Bank of England is also looking at this and uh, saying we've got very high levels of inflation. We now have an extremely significant fiscal stimulus, and they may well have to respond by raising interest rates even faster than they had planned. So the currency markets are difficult to predict, but that could be something that ultimately helps bottom out sterling, essentially as the Bank of England really has to move faster than market participants thought, raising interest rates, and that might suck in a little bit of overseas capital eventually. But it's an extremely challenging situation, both for the new government and for the Bank of England Chancellor. Now, you're, of course, well known at Capital Gearing because one of the asset classes which you've been very uh, heavily represented in is index-linked government bonds, obviously US uh, mainly, but uh, to a certain extent, I think, in the UK as well. So if the kind of scenario you've mapped out where we have obviously rising interest rates, uh, perhaps even more sharply than we've had before, massive issuance of debt by the UK government, at least, and possibly higher inflation, then presumably your holdings in index linked gilts, you're not going to be reducing them anytime soon. Would that be fair? Real yields have gone up, of course, in the last few uh, months, but uh, 
What do you think the outlook for the index-linked market is? That's correct. I mean, it, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but rising inflation can cause short-term weakness in index-linked bonds because rising interest rates hit a wide range of bonds, even index-linked bonds. So that, that can be a counterintuitive feature of them. As it happens in Capital Gearing Trust, we mostly own US index-linked bonds, which have actually performed relatively well. The UK index-linked market has sold off very markedly. But this sell-off is, is really interesting to us. We had somewhat anticipated this likely bond market weakness, so we were holding our bonds in shorter duration, and in the UK, very short duration. But as real yields have sold off, the value has improved and we're looking to lengthen the duration of our bond holdings. And indeed, we think it quite possible, say, at some point halfway through next year, that the UK and a lot of the developed markets, indeed emerging markets, could be in a synchronised recession. And we might be seeing interest rates coming back down again if inflation has somewhat come under control. And that could be in an environment when index-linked bonds are benefiting from higher than normal inflation and falling nominal interest rates. And so they have pretty much maintained their value this year. And we hope that next year there, there will be prospects for substantial gains. So yes, we are holding our weighting and increasing our duration. I also know that uh, Peter Spiller, your co-manager, who took over managing Capital Gearing Trust uh, 40 years ago, and is a very keen uh, historian of markets. And you have to say that, at least uh, to people like me, there was a slight tremor of anxiety when to read that uh, the new Chancellor is uh, promising a shift in economic policy towards an unashamedly pro-growth agenda uh, at a time when inflation is rising and we have this energy issue. Because, of course, History tells us that Tory governments, which embark on, uh, if you like, pro-growth agendas, certainly towards the end of a parliament, haven't had a lot of success. Uh, thinking back to Reggie Maudling in the 60s and uh, Tony Barber in the 70s. So I guess they have the new government has got two years to try and sort things out, at least give themselves a chance of uh, retaining power at the next election. Would you care to hazard a guess how that might play out? Well, I can tell you that I really wouldn't want that job. I mean, there is clearly a much more free market philosophy as you lay out, but there is an extremely challenging reality that the UK has exceptionally high borrowings and, you know, is going into a recession, is facing an energy crisis. And, you know, there are large political demands for increased spending, for example, on the NHS. So the political realities, I think, will be extremely difficult. And I think the government will need to persuade the population of the benefits and attraction of their free market agenda. If they don't, if they can't persuade the general population and if they can't persuade the markets that they can manage the debt with low tax rates and the spending commitments that they've already put in place, I think they will have an extremely challenging couple of years you know, it feels like a poison chalice to me. And I expect events will mean the outcome is different from the original plan. But um, I guess that's life really, isn't it? Um, certainly political life, I guess I would have to say. <laughs> that is certainly <laughs> the case. Well, let's move on then and talk a little bit about the investment trust sector. I mean, capital gearing, as, as well as your big holdings in uh, you know defensive assets, uh, you do have a significant weighting in equities and, and alternative assets, which you mostly access through your holdings in investment trusts. Um, can you just remind us first, you know, your equity weighting in the, in the portfolio, what's that at, at the moment? And how does that compare to the sort of historic average, both recently and over the longer term? Well, as you know, one of the really attractive features of the investment trust market is it allows you to access a wide range of underlying asset classes. So if you included all of our investment trust holdings and property holdings as, as equities, which technically they are, we're just under 40%. But a majority of those holdings are in quite specialist areas such as infrastructure, particularly around power and energy, specialist areas of the property market. So they're quite idiosyncratic equities. I think our conventional equity holdings are only around 15% of the portfolio. And that is a reflection of the fact we remain extremely concerned about the prospects for equity markets um, in the face of rising interest rates and very high valuations. 
So we are very defensively positioned. But uh, at 40% of the portfolio, we've certainly had lesser weightings to equities in the past. But as I say, a majority of those are in highly defensive equities, really, with some almost uh, debt-like characteristics. If we just talk briefly about what's happened to the investment trust sector this year, obviously, uh, across the piece, it's sold off quite dramatically. It's down uh, at least 15% so far this year, which is pretty much in line with, with some other global markets, to be fair. But discounts have widened generally across the piece as well. Uh, they're not necessarily the ones you own. And it's now out, I think, at around average of around 11%, which is, for recent years, again, that's quite a something getting towards an outlier, is it not? Absolutely. So that's a tension that we've been really noticing. We're, we're nervous about the underlying markets, but actually the discounts on investment trusts and individual situations are, are more attractive than they've been for much of the last decade, with the exception of spring 2020 around COVID. There were a number of opportunities then. But absent that, you know, it's been a long period of time where looking at discounts have thrown up fairly minimal opportunities. But we're certainly seeing a number of interesting situations now. And I think it really is a time where individual investors, including I'm sure a number of your listeners, will be well rewarded for some kind of detailed reviews of what's going on uh, in a number of uh, individual situations. Well, let's talk about some of those, uh, some of which I think you're happy to talk about at least in the context against which they've been happening in terms of this week's news. First of all, I'd probably just quickly mention uh, there's actually been some fundraising this week, which has become something of a rarity. <laughs> We've seen SDCL uh, Energy Efficiency Trust to raise some money, which is uh, obviously good to see. They met their target and actually exceeded their target. This is uh, ticker SEIT. They raised $135 million against their $100 million target, and that was at an issue price of 114 p and the shares have started trading already, and they were opened up slightly. Do you have any thoughts on either that specific trust or that particular sector, or on the fundraising outlook generally? Well, some general thoughts. I think it does show very clearly the truth in investment trust land, that if there is a premium, there will be investment. And it's one of the issues, I think, with our sector. This isn't talking about that specific company, which I'll come on to. But if there are premium, you know that those premiums will be issued into, whereas often when discounts emerge, they're not defended with quite the same vigour by boards and investment uh, managers. Uh, as you pointed out, there has been a general derating, and SDCL is one of a relatively small handful that has managed to maintain its premium rating, and it's continued to make use of that. It has been a serial issuer. You know, it, it has been a solid performer. The underlying company invests in energy efficiency, which is clearly a very important area at the moment. So, yes, I'm not surprised that there has been some issuance by this individual company. But taking a step back, last year was the second largest year ever for investment trust issuance, the largest year being 2006. I mean, the sense of history rhyming here, when you, when you tend to get a lot of issuance, um, often the vintages can be a little disappointing. And this year, in the face of a bear market, the level of issuance has been much lower. But a, a lot of the issuance that has occurred has been in, in the energy space. And yeah, this is a good example of a company that's, that's managed to raise uh, money. But I wouldn't expect that much more activity outside energy-specific situations. I mean, every week I look at the, or every day rather, I look at the list of uh, trusts that have been buying back shares because their uh, discounts have either gone up towards or gone through their discount control targets where they have them, in the minority of cases where they have them. But are you sort of implying that basically some boards aren't perhaps doing quite as much as they could do in that respect? Well, we definitely tend to see that the times when trusts get to premiums, uh, boards act with immediacy and vigour to issue into those premia. Whereas often what happens when they move to discounts, even discounts beyond the levels at which they state that they defend, that they, governance has improved and often boards take actions, but it tends to be sporadic, ad hoc, and often at levels quite significant outside the levels they say they're defending. There is an asymmetry, really, that the risk 
of issuance into premium is much greater than the benefit of buybacks at discounts. Yes, so without naming names, I think that's an observable trend. And one which, of course, you well know as uh, which you don't describe as ever as a capitalist, it doesn't describe as ever as an activist investor, but you do like to get involved in issues where you think that uh, boards are not doing what they should do, either in terms of discounts or in terms of managing their trust and, or in terms of consolidating the sector and so on. And it so happens there have been a couple uh, this week, which I thought might mention. Actually, the first one actually is not about one where I think... Uh, action on discounts is required. And this is LXI REIT, which has actually made a, uh, a rather clever sort of financing deal involving selling a 65-year income strip to raise some money and then uh, refinance some debt effectively. I think that's how that works. Um, it's not a major transaction in its own right. But of course, LXI just completed only uh, back in July a merger with uh, another property trust called uh, Secure Income Trust. I think it's fair to say that you might have been involved in that one a little bit in terms of voting for that one, or at least... Uh, welcoming it anyway, let's put it that way. That's, that's absolutely right. We'd love to see investment companies selling assets. In a sense, this is the flip side of the issue. This, this really is an example of an investment trust identifying an opportunity and taking action, which actually reduces the size of the asset pool that they're managing. It reduces the size of the manager's fee, but it results in superior returns to investors. And Secure Income REIT, which was the company that LXI bought earlier in the year, had a very strong management team. They remain on the board. LXI REIT is also a company with a very strong management team. And both of these management teams have a history of taking shareholder-friendly actions. And as a result, they have been rewarded with a premium rating. This is no different. It's an amazing company. Just very quickly, it owns uh, a number of properties, which it leases to operators, including some, some supermarkets, some travel lodge, hotels, some private hospitals. But brilliantly, it includes Alton Towers and Warwick Castle, the idea that you can buy a company and uh, be a part owner in Warwick Castle, I always really love. But yes, they've sold a strip of an index linked strip of income associated with some of these leases on essentially something like an annuity strip on about 2.7 real return, which is a very low interest rate. And it shows how hard and how institutions are bidding very strongly for inflation protected income streams, and canny managers are exploiting that demand. Another aspect of what you do, I mean, those shares, LXI, still obviously tra still do trade at a premium, and uh, the merger's gone through, and it's obviously been welcomed, you know, it's, it's actually added value already uh, as a result of that. But another couple of other cases which have involved some corporate action, one of them, rather confusingly, is something called the Secured Income Fund, ticker SSIF, which is a very different animal. It's a, it's a debt fund. And that is essentially now in wind down. That was a wind down that was agreed back in September 2020. And obviously, there's some special circumstances behind that. Perhaps we don't need to go into that. But you would see that as another example of a successful kind of intervention by shareholders or action by boards. You know, there's this constant process of uh, evolution, Darwinian process of evolution in the, in the investment trust sector. You think, would, would you count that one as a positive or not? Well, it's certainly a salutary tale on the kind of dangers of alternative investment trusts. You know, there are a number of alternative investment trusts which have been extremely successful. But there was a rash, particularly when interest rates were very low pre-COVID, there was a rash of investment trusts that were launched. And the key feature of them was that they had a 6% yield. It was, uh, some observers called the fool's yield. Anything with 6% yield could be floated as investors were desperate for income in a very low-yielding world. But the financial system has a bad habit of, of manufacturing things to, to kind of back-solve for demand. And in this case, the vehicle was making direct loans to SMEs and it turns out if you want to generate 6% yields from direct loans from SMEs when the risk-free rate is, is close to zero, then you're taking a lot of risk. 
and a number of the underlying investments went wrong. So in investment management terms, it is a tale of the dangers that lurk in these alternative investment trusts. But you're quite right from a governance point of view. Um, at the end of the day, the directors accepted that things hadn't gone to plan. They put the fund into wind down and it's in the final stages of delisting and um, distributing its cash. So that process has been managed well, but uh, there aren't many investors in this vehicle that would have come out of this situation feeling particularly good about it. Indeed. I mean, the shares are well down and have performed very poorly since uh, initiation. Okay, another couple of interesting corporate governance issues. I might mention Aberdeen New Dawn, that's ticker ABD, uh, where this week we heard the results of the AGM, which was held on the 6th of September. One of the outcomes of that AGM was that uh, 36.6% of the votes were cast against the re-election of one of the directors, which is a gentleman named Hugh Young, who is chairman of uh, Aberdeen Asia and a, and a long-serving and I think fair to say uh, respected uh, investment manager uh, based out in the Far East. But the note that I've got here says that the board noted the conflict of interest concern, adding that rigorous procedures are in place and continues to value Hugh Young's contribution and perspective. But it does raise an issue whether these days investment managers who are associated with the management company in whatever firm or the trust itself should be on the board of the trust. So what are, what are your thoughts about that? Well, the issue at stake is exactly as you said. It's it's a struggle over the correct level of influence of the investment manager over investment trusts. I don't think this is a statement on Hugh Young and his personal investing capabilities, uh, which, as you say, is an extremely well-respected uh, investor. For full disclosure, I came off the board of Capital Gearing Trust last year, so um, I can uh, confirm that this is a long-running trend in investment trusts. But essentially, the argument goes that investment managers often have a number of ways that they can influence investment trusts, often they're providing administrative and accounting support, sometimes company secretarial support and strategic advice to the board. Uh, and there has been a long history, I'm afraid, of investment managers using that influence to block shareholder-friendly actions such as share buybacks, some of the kind of discount management opportunities that, that boards are not taking up with the alacrity that they should, as we were talking about earlier, has been due, I'm afraid, to excessive influence of the investment managers on the board. The investment managers particularly don't want the trusts to shrink as it reduces their own uh, investment fees, income fees from the trust. So I don't think there's any need to be too religious about it. But in the long run, I think it is a positive trend. Um, the board can always get the investment manager's input, but the investment manager doesn't necessarily need to have a vote on the board. We might just quickly mention also in this context, there's a, an investment trust called Tryon Investors One, where there, again, has been a, some uh, pressure by uh, shareholders to uh, change the strategy of this particular trust where the managers actually own 27% stake in the shares of the company. And uh, I think it's fair to say the investment bank or broker that's associated with them represent a significant chunk of the equity. Um, and there's been changes there. The chairman was actually removed last month and uh, a new director appointed. And as a result of which we're now saying that the trust has put forward some proposals for a, a wind down of this fund as well. I don't think you were involved in that particular one, but um, this would be another example, perhaps, or perhaps a more extreme example of where, you know, large con near controlling stakes by uh, investment managers. We've seen that be a problem in the past. Yeah, I mean, they're always great things to observe, these kind of um, gamekeepers turning into poachers and other poachers and other gamekeepers coming onto the field. Tryan is a New York-based hedge fund. They're an activist. They raised a vehicle to take specific activist positions in a stock called Ferguson that um, some of your investors might remember as, as Wolseley and subsequently Unilever. But despite the fact the vehicle performed pretty well, it went to very significant discounts. These discounts weren't properly managed. And then a number of activist shareholders came onto the register of Tryan itself and engaged with the board and ultimately persuaded, uh, after changing directors, to return capital. 
there were very similar scenes in another hedge fund called Third Point, and even in Pershing Square, which is the probably the most high-profile listed hedge fund in London, there have been some uh, shareholder activism. So I think this is all positive. All of these represent wins for investors, and hopefully directors will be looking over their shoulders to understand what can happen if you don't look after your investor base properly. I think a lot of investment managers view investment trusts as permanent capital, but anything that can be done to disabuse them of that notion, the fact that if they don't treat their shareholders correctly, that capital will cease to be permanent, is very valuable for the sector. Just a small extension of that. Obviously, you take a great interest in in, uh, corporate governance and in ratings of trusts that have got too wide, shall we say. I mean, one other trust you might mention, which has also uh, made an announcement this week, and this is uh, Triple Point Social Housing REIT, ticker SOHO, S-O-H-O, have put out some interim results for the six months to the 30th of June, and their net tangible assets, or EPRA NTA, was up uh, 3.3%, so perfectly creditable from the face of it. But of course, this is one of the two trusts involved in social housing, which have you know, had a significant derating because of concerns that were raised in part by a short seller, but also uh, by some of the uh, announcements from the Housing Association regulator, uh, housing associations being the primary uh, uh, people with whom these two trusts deal in uh, offering uh, leases on properties. So that's been a big issue. These are both trusts which, uh, on the face of it, have a real positive social purpose, but they are trading on big discounts. They've gone out to you know, something like 20, more than 20%, 20 25%, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Is this a kind of situation where you would either get involved or have something to say to the boards about what they might do to deal with the kind of unfortunate situation in which they've found themselves, for better or worse? Yeah, absolutely. I think coming back to the example of uh, LXI REIT, I think that the first thing that any board should be thinking of, sorry, LXI REIT, I should make clear, was not trading at a discount. But what it has done to have its very strong rating is repeatedly sell assets where it can do so above NAV and use that, recycle that money. And, you know, our argument to companies like Soho is if the NAV is correct, that they should demonstrate that it is solid by selling assets and using the proceeds of those to buy in shares. I mean, these companies regularly issue and they can manage to buy these assets. There is a market for them. So we believe that they should be selling assets and buying in shares. And that would do more than anything else to reassure shareholders. Having said that, there are definitely underlying issues here. One of the great attractions of Soho is that its leases are long in length and they are linked to inflation. So that is a very attractive proposition from an investor point of view. But the amount of inflation, this this inflation spike has been putting pressure on some of the underlying tenants. And in Soho's announcement, they have alluded to the fact that for the first time in their history, they've had two of their underlying housing associations that are struggling to make rent payment. This is a new dynamic. In a sense, the market anticipated it. But there are definitely, it seems to me, going to be some adjustments that are going to be required in the operating models of these landlords. But yeah, it it appears that there continues to be a market for these assets. The inflation-protected nature of them makes them very attractive. And it just seems to me uh, that the boards should respond. Having raised a lot of money and grown quite rapidly, now's the time to put that same process into reverse and uh, make sure that shareholders are well supported. And if they can't do that, if they're not able to demonstrate the value there, they should look to the future of the trust. That's quite right. You know, at the end of the day, if they can't sell the asset for the levels that they're valued at, then, you know, they have to reflect that in the valuation. But presumably the directors and the investment managers have confidence that their valuation is correct. And the best way to show that is to, you know, sell 5 or 10% of your portfolio, buy in shares. It's a very accretive process for all involved. And yeah, that's how the process should work. 
Well, finally, Alistair, then I want to talk to you about the uh, infrastructure and renewable energy sector, where I know you've had a significant involvement and you've liked that as a safe subsector of the Investment Trust universe for a while. We've heard some results this week from uh, international public partnerships, ticker INPP, where the NAV per share was uh, up 6.1% to uh, 157.3p. We knew about the NEV before, but this is the interim results. And secondly, we've also heard an announcement about a new investment by the Renewables Infrastructure Group, ticker TRIG, where they're moving more heavily into the battery storage business. And finally, we've heard, I think it's the maiden interim results of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust, ticker TLEI, which has announced that its NAV per share is at 1.9% to 99.9 cents since its IPO, which was only last year on the 14th of December. I'm not going to ask you about those specifically necessarily, but in terms of what's going on with the government and the energy market in particular, but also infrastructure, there is this sort of two-way pull, isn't there? There is anxiety that there may be changes to the regime under which these trusts operate, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's more important than ever if the government is going to meet its targets, uh, both on infrastructure and renewable energy, that these trusts actually perform well. And they are still all trading at, at a premium. Uh, there hasn't been, so far, much of a negative reaction now that the risk of windfall profits has uh, disappeared. But at the same time, the government is investigating a scheme whereby they'll change the kind of long-term deals that they can expect from the regulatory system. So how do you kind of put that in the hopper? But you still think this is a sector that has uh, a good long-term promise? Yes, we do, in short. I mean, we've talked with Secured Income Fund, for example, about alternative investment trusts that have not worked well. I think this sector is a great example of alternative investment trusts that have worked well. And I think these are really valuable asset classes for investors to be able to access. We also touched on Liz Truss and the various announcements this week. I mean, one thing that she did provide some clarity on is that it does not appear likely that there'll be windfall taxes on generators. So that was a bit of a relief for a number of these renewable energy trusts. What they seem to be discussing, I think all the detail will come clear. We've just got the headlines from the speeches. But I think what they will try and do is decouple the power price from the gas price. That's a stated objective. The gas price is very high uh, at the moment and power prices are very high. Obviously, the costs for a renewable generator have not gone up because they don't use gas as an input price. So what the government are going to do slightly simplified, is offer essentially something like a feed-in tariff, so a fixed price. But they've also said they're going to do it by negotiation. So I think the government will use moral suasion and all their influence to fix the prices for the renewable generators. And I'm sure the renewable generators will want to be good citizens. On the other hand, it does sound like it will be a negotiation at the level at which those those will be fixed. And what might be given up in slightly lower prices, there will be gains in terms of greater security, greater certainty of revenue stream. And these revenue streams will, I'm pretty sure, remain index linked. So the returns of these assets are not very high. But we firmly believe they'll be higher than the kind of returns available on the wider equity market. And they should remain inflation linked. So, yeah, it was a good week for these companies. But as you say, it's of central importance to building out the energy infrastructure of the UK that these companies and the private companies doing the same thing continue to have incentives to invest. Yes. And so, and from an investor's point of view, it wouldn't be the end of the world if the outcome was an environment in which you could get these very long-term inflation-linked arrangements at a price you wouldn't make so much in the short term, but you would certainly have a longer guaranteed life, it would appear, which would be, I imagine, quite attractive. Though I guess the final question on this one is whether or not, in reality, given what's happening to inflation and interest rates and so on, uh, not to mention power prices, in reality, uh, whether or not uh, these... Uh, companies will be able to uh, capture all the impact of inflation over the the life of their contracts. Would that be a a fair concern or not? Well, possibly. I I think that's not top of our list. There are a number of areas 
there are a number of companies, particularly in the property space, but not just in the property space, that make claims to have index-linked revenue streams. But quite often those have caps and collars. So LXI REIT, actually, that we were talking about earlier, would be an example. They definitely benefit from inflation, but um, a number of their leases are capped at 4% or 5%. Whereas within the energy market, without getting too much of detail, but the rock market, which is the, the, the subsidy piece, has historically been uncapped inflationary increases. And in the contract for difference market, which is another government regime, that too has been uncapped inflation. So we will see um, IMPP, which you mentioned earlier, they have a range of different projects. So they capture probably only about 70% of inflation, but really in this environment, that's still pretty helpful. But the renewable energy companies, historically a number of their contracts have been uncapped inflation. It remains to be seen what these contracts will look like, but um, it's not top of our concern uh, list that the inflation levels will be capped. And it's possible even given what Liz Truss has said and some of the kind of free market uh, philosophy that um, the corporate tax rate could slightly reduce, which would be beneficial for these companies. But that would be an extra uh, treat, really, uh, for investors that we're not hanging our hat on that. Before moving on, I'll quickly uh, summarise some of the results that we haven't already mentioned. Uh, though, again, I just repeat there. You can find all the details by logging into the Moneymakers website. Uh, first up is the announcement from Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust, ticker AUSC, which I mentioned, where Harry Nimmo, the long-standing manager who set up the Smaller Companies team at Aberdeen uh, back in 1993 and has been managing this particular trust for more than 19 years, uh, following his appointment as lead manager in 2003, is announced that he's going to be retiring at the end of the year. His colleague, uh, Abby Glennie, who's worked alongside Harry in the Smaller Companies team for the past six years and has been co-manager of the Trust since November 2020s, will become the lead manager, supported by Amanda Yeaman, an investment director in the Smaller Companies team, uh, who in turn is going to become lead manager of the Aberdeen Smaller Companies Income Trust, ticker ASCI, uh, which is, if you like, the sister trust of Aberdeen UK's smaller companies growth but with a greater income bias as its name suggests. The long-term record of uh, this particular trust has been very good producing uh, NAV total returns of 13.1% per annum since uh, Harry Nimmo took over compared to 7.8% uh, for the NSCI including AIM XICs index uh, which is now the index against which performance is measured. The manager has some interesting comments to say about the likely development of the smaller company space, uh, which has obviously sold off quite dramatically this year. Uh, Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust trading at a discount uh, well south of 10% uh, and above the level at which the board normally has indicated it will make share buybacks and the sister trust is on a 12% discount. Uh, another portfolio manager change is that uh, BlackRock Latin America, ticker BRLA, uh, where Sam Vecht, an experienced managing director in uh, BlackRock's global emerging markets equities team, is taking over as lead manager after the uh, departure of Ed Kuzma. I hope I pronounced that right. Meanwhile, we've also heard from uh, Rockwood Strategic, ticker RKW, uh, which, if you remember, is this... Uh, small trust which has been the subject of a to-and-fro takeover battle but is now in the management of Harwood Capital uh, has announced that uh, has published a circular uh, and a prospectus in connection of its proposed emission to trading on the premium sector of the main market and the implementation of a placing program alongside that. Uh, the shares are due to be emitted to trading on the main market uh, on 29th of September. Meanwhile, at AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, ticker AJOT, as indicated in the 2018 prospectus for this trust, the board is committed to saying that it may offer an exit opportunity in October 2022 and every two years thereafter. 
but as the share price has been trading close to NAV recently and following consultations with the majority shareholders, the board has decided that there's no need to offer an exit opportunity this year. The Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust results were also published this week, that covering the period for the year to 30th of June, during which the NAV total return was down 27.3% against that NSCI plus XIC's total return index performance of minus 19%. So there was underperformance of 8% at the NAV level, and the share price was actually down, total return was down 34% as the discount widened out uh, over that period from 5.4% to 14.6%, as I've already suggested. The trust did repurchase 4.7 million shares at a weighted average discount of 9.1% during the period. Uh, and the board, it says, remains committed to protecting that discount target of around 8%. However, relative performance was weak and particularly struggled in the second half of the year, i.e. the first six months of this year, as the market rotated away from quality growth stocks, which is the main uh, style bias in this particular trust, which has performed spectacularly over many years, and particularly when markets recover from uh, big sell-offs uh, after initial surge, that's when these particular style tends to do well. Again, the managers have some interesting comments to make on that. We've also heard from Castelnau Group, which is another idiosyncratic investment trust, which was spun out by Phoenix Asset Management, ticker CGL, which sits in the flexible investment sector. And where it's been an eventful year, this trust actually produced an NAV total return of minus 17.5% in the first six months of this year, but the share price total return was uh, actually minus 17.1% as the premium actually rose. There's a premium on this trust and it actually rose over the period. 55% of this portfolio is in listed UK companies, 42% in unlisted uh, and the balance in cash or bonds. Uh, during this time, the team appointed new CEOs at two of its uh, portfolio companies, Dignity and Collectibles, and made key leadership appointments across the portfolio. Uh, this is uh, an interesting special situation, effectively. Vietnam Enterprise Investments, ticker VEIL, reported interim results for six months to 30th of June. There, the NAV fell by 20.1% compared with 21.2% for the reference index return. This trust also repurchased 4.9 million shares about 2.3% of the outstanding for $46.5 million because as the stock market fell quite sharply, no doubt influenced in part by uh, developments in China. The International Public Partnerships interim results for the period to the 30th of June, which I mentioned earlier, uh, ticker INPP, uh, the NAV increased 6.1% to 157.3p, driven in by a change in short-term inflation assumptions not totally surprising, and the portfolio's inflation linkage, uh, a £325 million capital raise, you may recall, and some foreign exchange movements. Uh, discount rates actually in this one were increased across the portfolio, driven by those higher inflation expectations. They're offset by the impact of a discount rate reduction for one of its uh, biggest investments, Tideway. The full-year dividend target was reconfirmed at 7.74p for full-year 2022, and the dividend was covered 1.3 times at the interim stage. Interesting among these various developments of this trust is the fact that Cadent, one of the companies in which it invests, uh, has been shortlisted by Ofgem, the electricity regulator, to develop the UK's first ever hydrogen village, converting 2,000 homes in Ellesmere Port, Whitby, from natural gas to hydrogen. Now, this one has a current yield of around 4.6%. The Renewables Infrastructure Group acquired the development rights for three battery storage assets in the north of England. And this is part of an extended move out into the battery storage business, which is a business which uh, there are some other investment trusts uh, invested in, Gresham House Energy Storage and Harmony Energy Income Trust, uh, as well as Gore Street Energy Storage. Meanwhile, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust, ticker TLEI, reported its first interim results to 30th of June following its IPO on the 14th of December last year. NAVP share was up 1.9% to 99.9 cents, equivalent to a 2.4% NAV total return. A maiden quarterly dividend of 0.44 cents was paid in June 2022. 
uh, and a second quarterly dividend of 0.44 cents has been declared payable on the 30th of September. Uh, the trust says 66% of its IPO project has now been committed with 266 megawatts of installed capacity. Uh, these include uh, solar assets in the Philippines and in India. So those are the main announcements we haven't covered earlier in conversation with Alistair Lang. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. It has been a important week for uh, UK, as I mentioned at the outset. I thought it might be interesting just to end by looking back to where we were in terms of the economy and the stock market uh, back in 1952, when Queen Elizabeth actually became Queen for the first time on the death of George VI. There's a certain irony, perhaps, in the fact that the annual inflation rate in 1952 was 9%, 9.2%. In other words, pretty close to where we are today, despite all the fluctuations that have happened since then. We were still in a post-war economic recovery at that stage. Inflation was at 9%. Uh, and since then, the average inflation rate has been 5% per annum in this country, higher than in most other large competitor nations. We are in a relatively inflationary country, and we're finding that out again at the moment. If you look across uh, currencies, and that's reflected in the fact that if you say, if you look back at the exchange rates against uh, leading currencies back in 1952, it's very interesting to see what's happened to the value of the pound since then. Uh, obviously, against the dollar, there was a fixed exchange rate of 2.80. Uh, and obviously, today, we are at around 1.15. So, significant depreciation against the dollar uh, over that period. And indeed, significant depreciation against at least seven other leading countries, uh, with one exception. So, we have depreciated significantly against German marks, Japanese yen, French francs, Swiss francs, uh, obviously, particularly. Canadian dollars and Australian dollars. But there is the consolation, such as it is, that we have held the value of our currency, at least to the extent that uh, we can measure it now that there is the euro in existence, against Italy. In terms of the stock market, well, I've only got the data from 1950, but the real equity total return since 1950 has been 7.2%. So that is after allowing for inflation, which has averaged 5% over that period. So significant returns to be had from the stock market. And that, of course, is why we continue to look at investment trusts and uh, other asset classes. They are the means by which we protect ourselves against inflation over time. Certainly the most reliable uh, way by which we can protect ourselves against the ravages of inflation over time. And we'll obviously hope that uh, uh, they will again do so now that we are entering a new reign. And of course, a reminder that there will be this additional podcast you can get from the website or by email involving my conversation with Stephen Tredgett, partner of Oakley Capital. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.